good to see you today. We are very thankful that we're able to be together. It seems like a long time since we've been able to accomplish that, a couple of weeks. Now, uh, with the blessing of the snow and a little bit warmer weather, not much, but enough that it's not snowing, have the rain, it's good to see all of you here this morning. Welcome our visitors, we have some present, we appreciate that you're among us, and we uh, hope that you can come back and join us uh, at other opportunities that you have as we meet tonight at 6 o'clock and on Wednesdays at 7, you're always welcome to be uh, here and to be a part of our uh, efforts to praise God, to worship Him, to learn from His Word. And I invite you to get a Bible and join us as we are actually in this lesson going to be the second part of one that we started a couple of weeks ago. And so um, if you'll allow me just a moment to uh, bring us up to speed from two weeks ago, we began a study uh, entitled Give Me the Bible, a song that we sing often that we're familiar with uh, that uh, encourages us and exhorts us as the people of God. And yet, unfortunately, it is uh, a, a, a sentiment that uh, increasingly in, in, in increasing numbers is not... Uh, uh, readily accepted, uh, even at times among churches of Christ. Uh, we hear uh, such things as give me my own wisdom and give me my own will. You might have been reading this past week and I, I haven't seen an update. I'm curious to find out. The um, United Methodist Church had a general conference over the weekend St. Louis, Missouri, and they were anticipating a division uh, there, uh, among uh, among them, concerning LGBTQ policies of that church, uh, the Bible has long since been laid aside for uh, in the nominate in the denominations. But we're especially concerned in this study about among God's people, because we, as the people of God, are warned not to be. Uh, deceived by the traditions of men. Colossians 2 and verse 8, in fact, says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So you see a clear uh, uh, distinction there, a warning not to have our spiritual treasures plundered by men's philosophies, by men's traditions bound upon us as the will of God by the basic traditions of the world, principles of the world. He continues in verse 22 of that chapter, began to warn against the commandments and doctrines of men. And so when we say, give me the Bible, we are guarding ourselves against those very things. And when we yield to the temptation to accept our own will, our own wisdom, rather than the Bible, the Word of God, a collection of 66 books inspired by God, written by uh, men of God for the world to understand the will of God, when we replace that with our own devices, then... It's going to end eternally badly for us. Amen. We cannot reject the Word of God and expect heaven to be our home uh, after this world. So in our first part one, our first lesson on this series, we, we looked at three, 
three basic points. Sometimes people will say, give me the Bible except when it judges me a sinner. Because you see the, the, the focus uh, when, when we begin to focus on what the Bible says about us, it, it exposes our own sin. The Bible is intended to do that. It's, enti- it's intended to teach us about our own sin as well as correct it through the Redeemer. It teaches us about redemption, about God's mercy and forgiveness in His Son, Jesus Christ. But when we, when we become uh, unwilling to, to receive God's judgments, then we, we reject the Bible. We don't want it anymore. We say, give me the Bible sometimes, except what, for what it says about the one true church. So many people push away the truth that says Jesus has one church, it belongs to Him, He purchased it, He is its head, it is His body, and He is its Savior. And so they want their own body. And as I said, so the Methodist church, United Methodists now, are anticipating, in fact, one of their plans on how to deal with their internal division is to divide into three different sub-denominations. Well, you see that that fundamentally is a, it shows an attitude that thinks the church belongs to men. And that men can change the church to suit them. That's not what the Bible says. They don't want the Bible. Don't give me the Bible when it talks about the church, its worship, its work, its organization, its, the morality of its people. Now, give me something else. And we studied a little bit about the idea of give me the Bible except for what it says about true worship. God is looking for true worshipers, worshiping Him in spirit and truth. We're going to add to this some, some uh, things that just really, again, some applications for ourselves concerning marriage. A lot of people will say, give me the Bible, they want the Bible, except for what it says about marriage. You know, we have a marriage manual. You know, if someone says, well, uh, you know, have, being married and having children didn't come with a manual, well, it did. It's the Bible. If we'll listen to it, it'll teach us how to be a husband, how to be a wife. In Genesis, the second chapter, God created the woman because it was not good that man was alone. God created marriage. We didn't. You know, that's the world says man adapted and socially changed to the point of, of you know, marriage became a part of, of uh, uh, his our societal development. No, God gave mankind marriage from the beginning. He said, This is now, Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she is taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleaved to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, God arranged this one flesh relationship. It's a relationship that is honorable among all. Marriage is all mankind. Wherever you live on the face of this earth, marriage has been ordained by God. And so in Hebrews 13 and verse 4, everyone is to honor marriage. Marriage is honorable among all and the bad undefiled. The fornicators and adulterers and adulterers God will judge. 
So, so God, you know, these days, God, people just don't want to hear what the Bible says about marriage. I mean, that's evident because of the corruptions of marriage that we see all around the world. Untold millions of men and women live together without marriage. That's a corruption. That's a defilement. That's not the will of God. He didn't. God arranged this relationship of marriage that, as a protective, as a protection and a guard against immorality. Many people have just said, "Oh, that's old-fashioned now to be married. Just live together," and they've cast it off altogether. Of course, the corruption of same-sex marriage in this country and in other places uh, itself, again, is uh, of the will and lusts of men, not the will of God. Leviticus, the uh, 18th chapter, I believe, verse 22. Leviticus 18.22, God made this very clear to Israel long ago. He said, "...you shall not lie with a man as with a woman." It is an abomination. So God says it's abominable. Man says it's legal, it's justified, it's just like a man-woman marriage. Woman-woman marriage. Man-man marriage. No, it's not marriage at all. It's an abomination before God. Amen. Give me the Bible unless you start talking about same-sex marriage. Or, or we could add to that polygamy. Man introduced polygamy, Genesis the fourth chapter. God didn't. Lamech did that. And it always brought trouble. See, God, God arranged marriage with a husband and a wife. One man and one woman with roles. The husband is the head of the wife. The wife is to be submissive to the husband. There's responsibilities and roles in each. And it makes for a unit, a unity and for success in that relationship. It requires the action of love and respect. Ephesians 5.23, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so as a head of the wife, God's book says, love your wife like you love yourself. Honor your wife. Sacrifice yourself like Jesus sacrificed for His church. God's book says, wives, be sub, uh, in submission to. Submit yourself to, the, to your husband. Oh, the world doesn't want that. The world says that's ridiculous. The world says, no, no, we want feminist, the feminism uh, and its rights and, and, and such. It, it casts away, the world casts away the roles of the submissive wife, like the church is supposed to submit to Jesus. No, no wonder the churches of the men don't want to submit to Jesus. And, and so marriage is also corrupted. Give me the Bible. So are we going to the Bible to be better husbands, to be better wives, to have a marriage God wants us to have? To be the type of person to choose that and to honor marriage. The world doesn't. 
world world has long since said, no, we don't want what the Bible says about marriage. Well, let's add to that a little bit. Because some people will say, well, give me the Bible, except for what it says about divorce and remarriage. They'll even they'll agree, oh, marriage is for life. They'll agree, marriage is one man and one woman for life. They'll agree, there's roles of husbands and wives. They'll agree we're supposed to, 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 to uh, thrive in this relationship God has given. But then some will turn right around and say, but if you just can't work it out, then go your separate ways. And it'll be okay. Now, understand, it is sin to sunder what God has joined together. It is a tragedy that there are those who bring sin into a marriage. It's a tragedy. There's nothing that that is that is that is healthy about that. Matthew 19 and 6 says, "What therefore uh, see that there are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not let no man separate." So if I separate, I bring into my marriage and I separate that which God has joined together. I sin. That's sinful. In fact, go with me a little further. Go to 1 Corinthians 7. Now, you see that in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, unfortunately there are some who, who have come to 1 Corinthians 7 and they've tried to, to suggest that really the only married people that he's talking about here are married Christians. No. He's talking about anybody who's married. His letter is to Christians, but remember... God joins man and woman in marriage from the beginning of time. Whether you're a Christian or not, you enter that relationship, you're bound by His, His will and to honor that marriage. Now He makes the... And, and that's seen when He says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Paul's saying, what I'm saying now is something Jesus spoke on. Well, when Jesus spoke on it, He talked about something that was from the beginning. Long before there was a church. Brethren who tried to, to say 1 Corinthians 7.10 is only talking to Christians are misapplying the passage. Amen. Look what Jesus said. Where did He say this? A wife is not to depart from her husband. Where did He say that? You know that word Depart. It's the same one that's used in Matthew 19 and verse 6. Sunder. It's the Greek word karizo. It means to put separation between. To put distance between. To, to tear apart what God has joined together. The Lord said, Paul is affirming, a wife is not to depart, not to karizo from her husband. Why? Because God joined man and woman, one man and one woman. And it's not lawful to put away a mate for every cause. Matthew 19.3 okay. Now look at verse 11. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband's not to divorce his wife. That's not permission to do so because he turns right around and says, don't do it. He says, don't do it. He said, that statement in the, is, is sandwiched in between two prohibitions. And yet some want to read the first part of verse 11 and says there's permission to end my marriage because we just, we just don't get along. Have you looked at it? Have you seen it? There, there's some brethren now who say, well, well, it, it's just better for us not to be together. We won't ever marry anybody else, but, but we're just going to have to separate. Is that what verse 11 is saying? 
not saying that at all. That's not a 40-second cousin of what's being said because he begins the statement and he ends the statement by saying, don't depart. He doesn't in the middle of it say, but go ahead and do it if you just can't get along. No, he's saying, don't add sin upon sin. If that's happened, then here's your options. Remain unmarried or be reconciled. Give me the Bible. Until you start talking about divorce and remarriage. Oh, that, no, that's, that's too filled with emotion. I know it is. It is full of emotion and hurt very often. But not because of God, because of sin. Now we as God's people have to either commit ourselves to truth or join the world that's long since said, don't give me the Bible when it gets down to, to these hard truths about divorce and remarriage. What hard truth are you talking about, Job? It's not easy to be married. Don't, don't you get that? It's not always easy to be married. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes commitment. It takes devotion. It takes faithfulness. It takes resisting the devil. It takes communication. It takes a life devoted to each other and devoted to God. When God is not the center of our marriage, the center of our hearts, our marriages are going to suffer. Now, it takes two, doesn't it? Go to Matthew 19. And here's the point, you see. Some agree right up to the point where we read Matthew 19, 9, and, the, and, and, and again, that, that they, they don't want that part of it. So let's read that. Matthew 19 and verse 9. We're going to say, give me the Bible. Well, here it is. You know, after Jesus gave them the Bible in Matthew 19, 3-6, He gave them what the Bible said, what the Hebrew Scripture said. They, they said, well then, they started objecting. Well, why then did Moses command a certificate of divorce and, put him, and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives or put away your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. He says it was not now, nor was it ever so, that God intended you to put away your wives. And I say to you, not Moses, I say to you, whoever puts away his wife, divorce some virgins say divorces, the idea is put away his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Therefore, the exception applied, if you put away your mate because the mate commits adultery, then you marry another, you do not commit adultery. See, he gives, he gives a, a one reason for ending a marriage with freedom to remarry. Then he goes on to say, now watch it, he said, whoever marries her who is put away, who is divorced, commits adultery. Why is that? Well, if they're put away for the cause of fornication, they're, they're a fornicator and an adulterer. And you don't, that, the adult, you marry an adulterer, you're in adultery. But what if you just end the marriage for no, no reason? Just can't, irreconcilable differences. So now you've got a person out there that shouldn't be put away, and someone comes along and marries them. Well, that's adultery too. 
God's Word's pretty restrictive, isn't it? Truth is kind of that way. The narrow way that leads to life. Kind of that way sometimes, isn't it? Got to put away the things of the world. Got to have a commitment to what the Bible says about marriage as well as about divorce and remarriage. Look at Matthew 5.32. We get something else here. And that is, when I, if I put my wife away, not for the cause of fornication, then I bear responsibility when somebody marries her and enters adultery. And she enters it with them. I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. I cause her to commit adultery if I put her away for a cause other than fornication. And whoever marries a woman who's put away commits adultery. Why? Because she doesn't have a right to be bound to, to, to be joined to another man because God bound me to her and her to me for life. Romans 7, 2 and 3. Obligation for life. That's what marriage is. Now, give me the Bible. All oh, but good brethren disagree. Yes, brethren disagree. Brethren have... Let's see. Brethren have disagreed on the one true church. Brethren have disagreed on true worship, whether or not we ought to add the instrument. Is it any wonder? Do we doubt that brethren are going to disagree about divorce and remarriage too? But that doesn't change truth, does it? And, and so, when we say, give me the Bible, do, do, I, do, I, I want, do I want that truth? Or do I want it as long as it conforms to what I want about the truth? The Bible says, if I, if I introduce sin into my marriage and I drive that partner away by that sin... I've sinned. I've sundered what God joined together. He gives the reason to end a marriage with freedom to remarry to one person, the one who puts one away for the cause of fornication. Now, what about marriage to an unbeliever? Sometimes this comes up. It came up in the first century. And unfortunately, it comes up today because, because you know, sometimes brethren who want to... Um, well... Let's put it this way. Expand what Paul says to apply to people it doesn't apply to. 1 Corinthians 7, he's just reiterated marriage is for life. Just what Jesus taught. Made the application of what Jesus taught. Now he's going to say to the rest. Now, who's the rest? Well, he's going to tell us who he's talking to so we don't have to be in, in doubt. To the rest, I, not the Lord, say. He says, I'm going to speak to some concerning an aspect of marriage that that Lord didn't, didn't speak to directly, but the principles still apply. But now look what he says. If he, the rest here is a brother married to an unbeliever or a sister married to an unbeliever. If any brother has a wife who does not believe, that is, they're not a Christian, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Let him not put her away. Well, why is that? Because marriage is for life. Because marriage is one man and one woman for life, whether you're a Christian or not. It's a lifelong obligation. So, she's willing to live with you. Christians weren't told, you've got to put away your unbeliever to, to follow Jesus. 
A woman who has a husband who does not believe. If he's willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Same application. Four. Why is that so? He says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Now, does that mean that the unbeliever is automatically saved? No. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 shows that. But it does show that the unbeliever has the opportunity through the sanctifying influence, through the holy influence of the Christian in that marriage. The Christian needs to be a Christian in that marriage to bring an opportunity to the unbeliever to be, become a believer, to be saved. And he said, otherwise your children would be unclean, but now are they holy? That is, now Timothy grew up in that kind of an environment, for example. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. Brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. Alright. Now some brothers say, well now here's another reason you can remarry. The unbeliever just leaves. Now, if an unbeliever just leaves, what did verse 11 say that leaves a marriage? You leave a marriage, whether you're a believer or not, God bound you for life. That's already established. That's a principle from the beginning. So, here's one that leaves. This particular one leaves because they're an unbeliever and the believer is going to put their faith first instead of the unbeliever. And the unbeliever says, I don't want any of that. I'm leaving now, is Jesus giving the believer a right to remarry? Well, verse 15 doesn't say anything about remarriage. Number one. Number two, He simply says, you let him go because you see, you are not now nor you have you ever been in bondage to that person. You're not a slave to your mate to do what your mate says when that mate is telling you to do something that is against the will of God. Amen. He's making that application. And He's telling the believer, the believer, if your unbelieving mate says, it's me or your faith, He says, you keep your faith. God has called us to be at peace with Him. And if the unbeliever departs, they depart. Now what does that do about remarriage? Well, it doesn't say anything about remarriage. Why? Because the Bible is very clear. Unless you put away from the cause of fornication and you marry somebody else, you commit adultery. So what do you do? You remain unmarried or you be reconciled. That's verse 11. People don't want that Bible. So they've manipulated, they've twisted, they've turned and perverted something that's really rather clear. One man and one woman for life with one exception. And they've rendered it ineffective and useless to in effect say you can divorce for just about any reason and given the right circumstance you can both remarry and you're both okay. Don't you believe in forgiveness, Joe? Absolutely. So does God. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we can stay in in a sinful relationship. And if I... If I enter a marriage that I is unlawful, Jesus says it's adultery. God's not going to allow me to stay in adultery. And He's not going to redefine it 
for my sake. He's going to say, come out and be separate, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. That's the Bible. Do you want the Bible? Do you want the Bible? You see, if you want the Bible, then the Bible says you don't leave God and God's will to please your spouse. Don't do that. Drop on down to verse 23. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. We must obey God rather than men. And that includes a husband or a wife who's an unbeliever who's saying, it's me or your faith. How's that going to play in the day of judgment? If I say, well, it's, I'll take my spouse rather than my faith. How will that play? Not very well. And so brethren, let us to say, give me the Bible, then let's come back to the fundamental point of faith in what the Bible says. Trust that this is right. And it's for our protection, for our spiritual well-being, so that we live with God now and eternally. Well, let me move on. Give me the Bible, Joe, except for what it says about alcohol. No. And alcohol, you know, you, 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 just, you just bind it. Now, I know that drunkenness is sin. Right? Someone will say. Of course, drunkenness is sin. It's a work of the flesh. It's identified in Galatians 5.21 and other places. But, you know, having, having a glass of wine at my meal, that's just, that's just getting too extreme. Well, let's talk about that a minute from this respect. Let's talk about alcoholic content because it's an issue of intoxication. As I, best I can tell in Scripture, he's talking about, uh, about intoxicating ourselves. And so, of course, someone who's drunk, inebriated, drunk, uh, intoxicated. But you know, there's a lot of people get behind a car that even our laws will say are intoxicated, and yet they would say, well, I'm not drunk. So, so we have to acknowledge that drunkenness and intoxication are not always equivalent, are they? There's, there's certainly a range there, but, but I want you to know, first of all, what the Bible says. A couple of verses, a lot of different ones we can look at, but Isaiah 28, verse 7. In the Old Testament, to Israel, to, to Judah, uh, Ephraim, and Jerusalem, it says, they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink or out of the way. It talks about wine and it talks about strong drink or intoxicating drink. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Well, again in chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Note the point, there's wine there and there's strong drink or intoxicating drink there. In Isaiah 5, and uh, verses 11 and 12, Woe to those who rise up early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink or strong drink, who continue until night till, uh, continue until night till wine inflames them. So you have, a, you have a parallel of strong drink and wine there. The harp and the strings, the tambourine, the flute, and wine are in their feasts, and they do not regard the work of the Lord nor consider the operation of His hands. 
You know, no. there's obviously condemnation of wine and strong drink in those verses and others. Think with me for just a minute about the alcoholic content of wine. Because you see, sometimes that's the argument. The argument is, is well, they drank wine. They, they drank wine in the Bible. Well, yeah, they did. We've we've read some of that, and we've seen that that God condemned it. No, Jesus turned the water into wine. Well, that's that's another study, and I don't think he made intoxicating drink. I don't think Jesus became the bartender. I don't think he made what God said is sinful. And you want to debate that? Well, we can we can debate that. You want to present evidence to demonstrate that Jesus did that? Then I want to see the evidence. I'll I'll give it a hearing. I'll give it an analysis. I'll study that using the Word of God. I'll let it. I, we're not just going to accept it because it's asserted. We're going to examine it from the evidence provided and see if, in fact, Jesus made intoxicating drink. But that's beside my point this morning. Think about the alcoholic content of wine. In the Bible, this is just lifted off the internet. I just put in alcoholic content of Bible wines. Now you can do the same thing. Quote, in the Bible, alcoholic wine is not like wine today. The sugar of grape juice can only ferment to 3 or 4% alcohol with wild yeast, airborne yeast. For grape juice to exceed 4% alcohol, then the winemaker must add yeast. And by the way, you know, grape juice left out, eventually it spoils, it turns into vinegar, right? The yeast added to ancient wines produced between 4 to 11% alcohol. So, so if, you, if you controlled the, 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 the yeast, you'd get 3 to 4% alcohol. If you added yeast, you get about. They've been able to see that they were making out, you know, wine about four to eleven percent alcohol. Now, compare that. And by the way, remember this is wine. Yayin in the Old Testament, Tarash, Yayin especially. Now, today, modern wine, on average. The ABV, that's alcohol by volume for beer, is 4.5%. Wait a minute. 4.5%? That sounds like Bible wine. For wine, 11.6%. Well, it's getting on the upper end there, isn't it? And for liquor, 37%. According to William Kerr, senior scientist of the Alcohol Research Group of the Public Health Institute, the range in alcohol level is a result of how each beverage is made. He says, what's your point, Joe? Here's my point. What's called wine today more closely is the strong drink of the Bible. Not the wine of the Bible. The strong drink of the Bible. The intoxicating drink of the Bible. That's almost always condemned. It's, it's across the board condemned. And yet people will say the wine, the table wine today, that we, they drank, we can drink that because they drank it then. No, what you're drinking as a table wine today is more akin to the intoxicating drink that's condemned in the Scriptures. Yeah, it's, it's like trying to compare apples and apples and apples and oranges. 
When someone says, well, they drank wine in the Bible, we can drink today, that's apples and oranges. Now, you see, the alcoholic content of, the, of today's wine is a strong drink that's condemned in Scripture. But more than that, or in addition to that, the Bible says not only is drinking drunkenness sin, but drinkings, banquetings, drinking parties are sin. The drinking that leads to the excess is also sin. I have some material in the bulletin about this. Again, it was intended a couple of weeks ago. Weather prevented that, but it's here now with this lesson. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunken with wine wherein is right. Drunkenness doesn't just happen. There's a process to it. How are you going to not be drunk? You don't start the process. Because wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever errs thereby is not wise. Give me the Bible, except what it says about, about drinking. Brethren, there are more and more brethren in churches of Christ who are accepting and, per, and practicing the social drink. But, oh, I only have a glass of wine at home. Well, now, when did privacy make sin okay? I'll let you answer that if you want to defend social drinking or you want to defend drinking in the home. How about pornography in the home? How about adultery in the home? How about lying in the home? When we do it outside, we just do it at the home. How about hatred and anger at home? See how foolish that is? How human wisdom can be injected into the, into the topic when it ought not. Give me the Bible. Well, my time's up, but I do want to just make this one final point with you. Give me the Bible. Sometimes we say except for what it says about my spiritual growth. Because really, I can talk about wanting to grow spiritually, but if I really go to the Bible and really start learning what it says about that, then I'm not sure I want to be a part of that. You see, the Bible tells me that where there's envy and strife and contentions, then I'm carnal. And, you know, i got a good reason to be upset at that fellow over there and be mad at you over there. And, but the Bible says envy and strife, and all that's carnal. Do I, do I really want to, to, to be strong in Christ or to be carnal? If so, then I'm going to have to repent of those things that, are, that prevent me from growing spiritually. Give me the Bible sometimes, except don't expect me to be a teacher. Well, the Bible says God expects you to be a teacher. When by reason of time, you ought to be teachers. You have need again that someone teach you. That doesn't mean everybody has to stand in the pulpit. But we teach somehow. We teach as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife, as a friend, as a neighbor, as a brother, as a sister. We do some teaching somehow, somewhere, some, some, sometime. We want to be strong. We want to grow in Christ. Spiritual neglect is talked about in the Bible a lot. Because you see, when we neglect our spiritual responsibility, we harden our heart. Don't harden our hearts. Hebrews 3, he says, uh, warns us about it. It says, don't develop an evil heart of unbelief and falling from the living God. 
We need to exhort one another daily. So long as we have the day that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Give me the Bible, Joe, but don't expect me to, 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 to really address the things in my life. Well, that's foolish, isn't it? I mean, that's, to think that we can, we can go through life and we can claim God, we can claim Jesus, we can claim His church, we can claim uh, being a Christian and not address our spiritual condition with God and to grow and to be stronger. It's just not going not to be a blessing. Not going to be the way it's going to accomplish anything good for us now or eternally. Give me the Bible. Brethren, the Bible is a great, great blessing. A lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. It is the standard by which we understand truth and error, sin and righteousness, good and evil to cling to the good and to hate every false way. Magnificent blessing. Because it's the Word of God. It's not the Word of men. It's, it's, it's God's Word to us. That's why we say, give me the Bible. Because it identifies sin and it tells me of God's love. It tells me of God's mercy, of His grace, of His forgiveness. It tells me of the Redeemer. It tells me of the Savior who died for me and saved me. Shows me the way to the Father. Shows me how to live with God now and live with Him forever. Give me the Bible. Give it to me when I have to address the sin in my life because that sin's going to keep me away from God. Give me the Bible so I can teach it to those who need it and I can learn it myself because I need it. Give me the Bible. Not the creeds of men, not the opinions of men, not the traditions of men. Give me the Bible. It can be understood the way God wants us to understand it. One of the devil's lies is that we cannot understand the Bible the way God wants us to understand it, to be right with Him and to have any confidence at all or faith that in fact what we believe is true. That's a devil's lie and deception to cause doubt and anxiety or faithlessness. Usually in that order. Brethren, give me the Bible. Friend, if the Bible's not in your life, put it there. Let it be a light unto your feet, a lamp to your path. Let it be the, 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 the standard of truth that has the power not just to save you from your past sin, but to allow you to walk with God now and live with Him forever. That begins by becoming a Christian. Can't, not going to be able to accomplish that unless we repent of our sins against God, unless we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, unless we are baptized into Christ for the remission of our sins. If that's your faith, then we encourage you to obey that faith this morning. Repent and be baptized, and Christ will save you and add you to His church. Then as a Christian, we urge you to be faithful to Jesus, to follow His Word, to confess sin when you find it in your life. To repent of that sin and pray God to forgive you. To use this opportunity if there's public sin to make that right. Correct that now. You need our prayers. We'll pray together because God will hear our prayers and answer those prayers in His great love for us. If we can help you accomplish those things, receive those blessings from God, we urge you to do that while we stand and while we sing.